You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Uncivil Outlaw. Chapter 7. Going to Ground. I clambered into the back to sit with Miguel. You okay, kid? He had grabbed the onboard medical kit and was inspecting the throwing knife cut to his calf. Luckily, the blade had missed his tendons, but it was still bleeding like crazy. I knelt and got him to put his foot up. Unsure as to whether this was the right practice, but remembering how James had asked Annie to put her leg above her heart to slow the bleeding. Miguel lay on the floor as I cleaned and sterilized the wound. It would be nice if Dr. Penrose had come with us. I've watched him enough times to know what I'm doing. I half lied. We're going to have to stitch this thing. And you need to go easy on it for a while. I retrieved a small bottle of brandy from the kit. You want a drink for the pain? No. Just something to bite on. I handed him my thick brown leather glove. What followed was agonizing for both of us. I could tell I was hurting him immensely. And every spasm that racked through his body made me want to stop. But I couldn't. He seemed to pass out after a while, but I realized as his eyes drifted that he was simply going somewhere else up there in his brain. I finished off my messy field surgery, wiped it down with alcohol again, and gently applied a bandage. Then I pulled the kid up and sat him in the chair beside the hole in the back that White's blade had created. The chill wind whistled through it, and the others in the roof, as we made our way west toward the city of Winchester. Miguel slumped in his seat, dazed and afraid. This made me feel even worse. I wanted to find the magic words that would convince him I knew what I was doing and that it was definitely the right thing. But at this moment, after what had just transpired, I was wavering. You did good there, Miguel, I said deciding on what I knew was true. I squeezed his shoulder. You and your mom were exceptionally brave. Again. I don't feel brave. I feel sick. And I don't know what to do. At this, I took my Stetson off. You can wear this for a little while. Always helps me feel brave. I placed it on his head, where it immediately dropped down over his eyes. He snorted with laughter underneath it. Your hat smells... I've been sporting that thing for years. It's more sweat now than leather. And yeah, it's too big. But you're braver than me already, even with such a tiny peanut-sized head. I lifted the brim and looked into his wide eyes. You've survived the kind of year that most full-grown, beefy men would just curl up and die at the thought of having to go through. You don't need my hat. You're the toughest person I know. Thank you. For what it's worth, you're the second toughest I know. So what are you going to do? Well, where are you headed? At the moment, just as far away from White as I can get. Do you want us to come with you? I thought about this hard. I could definitely use a team. I need the support, and I trust your judgment. But now I'm thinking about your way back to Rama. If James were here, he could open a door for you, but... But James isn't here. We're not going back to Langley. If you went to Rama, I said, trying to prevent the tremble in my voice, the back way we found near Clendenin, 
you could go home. Her home, at least. From what you've told us, it sounds like they need all the help they can get to repel the lions. We can go after we help you get to where you need to be. Wyatt wants all these doorways closed. If something happens to me, and he gets what's in my head, or if he finds another way to close them, that's it for the last exit to Kitty World. You're stuck here forever. But you're resisting White for exactly this thing we have. Jeremy talked about it all the time. He called it a, a bond between desperate... Uh, no, disparate races. He means her and me. But bigger. If you don't go back and help rid your country of slavery... There won't be a liberated people for us to bond with. This felt like a truth we could work with at last. It just hurt to be this certain. Miguel reached his hand out and took mine. I don't want this to be goodbye forever. I like being part of your tribe. I like you being part of it too. I sat beside him and wrapped my arm around his shoulder. We have shit to do, sorry. We have stuff to do separately but I hope we come back together again. You know, when we thought Harau had died and I was in mourning, Captain Oakley came to me to say I didn't need to worry about losing my family. She called me Hermanito, which means little brother. I loved her for that. I miss her too. I held back an obstinate tear. Can I call you Hermana? That's sister. I'd like that. I breathed and let him rest his head on my shoulder. I thought of Joanna and David and how they would react to the news that their sister was a traitor to her country. In the woods off the track outside Berryville, we parted ways. Spearhead was running low on juice, and we would have to limp the last ten miles there. I stood alert, listening for encroaching sounds of enlisted footsteps, while Miguel explained to the tiger our reasoning for splitting up. Rao glanced at me several times during this, and then approached to inquire in English. Are you sure? You fought for me already, I said as Miguel translated. Time to fight for your people once more. Frau lowered herself and bowed her head just a little. I will stand beside you again, Grey Warrior. She promised. Miguel mimicked her gesture, so I felt it only proper to do the same. Then I handed the boy a folding map. I've marked where the back door is, I said, but he grinned and shook his head. I memorized the route while we were guests at Langley. Somehow, I think we both knew this day would come. It's 250 miles, kid. This is going to take you weeks of travel and hiding. At the speed she runs with me on her back, with the forests we have between here and there, it will take us five days. However, now that Mr. Tesla has brought us this far, it will only take four. We all got pretty beat up back there. Can she... Her wounds are healing already. Miguel interjected, and as the great beast licked the dried blood from her fur, 
I could already make out the crisscrossed scars beginning to form. The kid was right. And thinking about it, whatever Seth had gifted to her had probably saved all of our bacon. So you're going to be okay? Yes. I think we will. He removed my hat and held it out to me. How about you? I'm paying a visit to an old friend. I smiled, pushing the comfortable battered headgear back into place. He'll take care of me. With a final nod, Miguel climbed a little shakily onto Rao's back, trying not to put too much weight on his bandaged calf. Rao stretched and roared. And with a flourish of her tail, she turned and galloped away through the trees. Back at Langley, White had returned to the hangar and marched right up to Edison, who was conscious once again, and massaging his aching back. Mr. Edison, did she say where she was going? She said nothing of the sort, just electrocuted me and stole my pride and joy. I'd better get that back, sir. A lot of hours of brain power went into Spearhead, and it's all but my property. All but. Much like the endowment inside Captain Gray's head, it is property of the RS government. Don't worry. We'll get them both back. White's eye shot up towards Catherine, who was standing atop the gantry. He sprang up the stairs as Lee followed, pulling me along. James, glad to see we're both able to assist Mr. White here with his administrations. White cocked his head and started slotting throwing knives, retrieved by Lee, back into his leg apparatus. It is a shame you couldn't talk any sense into this fugitive's head. It does suggest Penrose will not have much more luck if he gets a word with her. I would still recommend negotiation before you eliminate all other options, Mr. White. Quite apart from that young woman being an exceptionally brave soldier, and a continuously forthright one at that, she has a measure of control and familiarity with the endowment, which will be tough to replicate, especially if we need it quick. That is true. White glanced my way. The plan is still to give you your chance, Dr. Penrose, and Director Holloway. I do not doubt the girl's bravery. In fact, I recognize it, even amidst behavior many would consider batshit insane. What she lacks, and what makes her such a slippery customer, is an essential loyalty. And that is something I take a very dim view of. He glared back at Catherine. Be sure to scour your department for those who would play the turncoat. Later, on Thundercloud, we drifted along Abigail's trail above the route west of the District of Columbia. White had retired to his quarters to see to his injuries and rest, but Truth Arlington had emerged to watch the road with Agent Lee and I. Beneath us, the ground team on horseback had scouts galloping to each point of interest to converse with those who were there, picking up information on the direction this strange wheeled machine had taken. 
A rider with flags periodically signaled to the pilot as we slowly adjusted course along the scent lines of our quarry. She's really set fire to the gazebo now, said Truth. But you know, as much as I disagree with her actions, abandoning may be the most important job in the world. She isn't abandoning it, I countered. Then I glanced at Lee. I had to choose my words carefully here, or be taken as sympathizing with Abigail's stance. She is... Optimistic as to the possibilities of extra-dimensional unification. And whatever side you fall on that argument, her character is not in question here. Maybe only her sense of proportionally appropriate pragmatism. I was going to say, I don't like Abigail personally. In fact, off the record, she drives me nuts. But again... As much as I disagree with her actions, she stole herself away when what she was holding, and by proxy, she herself, was considered property. I nodded gravely. She's always had a problem with the concept of ownership of people. The endowment is, by its very nature, property, said Agent Lee, which surprised Truth and I, for she had not spoken in a long while. But she because of her connection to it, is expected to subsume herself for a greater ideal. So, if there was a way to sever that connection without killing her, do you think, Doctor, that we could come to an arrangement? Let her be dishonorably discharged while we keep the key. I could not answer this truthfully without discussing Abigail's fundamental mistrust of white, so I elected to go with the diplomatic answer. If such a way could be found, we should try everything in our power to make that happen. Lee had noticed my moment's hesitation and laced her fingers together in front of her. Do you know the recent history of Britain's involvement with China? I know a little. Several times over the past four decades, Britain attempted to reduce their debt of silver with poppies grown in India, which we occupied back then. I don't know about now. In a bid to score territory, she said icily, your empire took advantage of unprincipled traitors who flooded my country with opium, leaving my people dependent addicted, wasting away. She was being deliberately blunt, masking the anger in her voice, but the muscles in her eyelids twitched almost imperceptibly when she said the words, my people, and addicted. Physically, I assessed her to be around 40 years old. Born in 1844, 12 in 1856, the beginning of the Second Opium War, lost people to this drug. No, a person, mother, father, sibling. Either way, she would have felt helpless anger, resentment, despair. Despair. Such despair. Living through that taught me a lot about Westerners. Especially the kind who is well-dressed, polite, and likes to make deals.
as we neared Winchester, Spearhead had all but given up the ghost. Can you make it to the city limits on foot from here? Tesla asked. I can damn well try. Do you mind if I don't tell you who I'm meeting or where I'm going after that? I would say it is imperative that you don't. After all, you took me as your hostage. I am very valuable to Washington. I want to keep things that way. Now stay here, by the side of the road, and don't try to follow me or see where I'm going. It was a pleasure to have defied these assholes with you. He said grimly as we shook hands. I set out through the woods, steering away from the road. All the while, my ears were pricking up to make out sounds of approaching horses or that dreaded airship. Eventually, I came out upon a wide, snowy plain. To the north lay the city, smoke rising from their chimneys, people in the streets, visible from where I stood. To the south lay something I had not expected to see, an encampment of the new Confederacy, the stars and bars of the red and blue flag flying at every post. It looked like a small army was there. On the one hand, I was walking into a very dangerous area. But on the other, the people of Winchester had a lot more to think about than just little old me. Before I broke cover, I needed to adopt a disguise of sorts. From the telltale wired poles heading up to it, Winchester was on the telegraph system. This meant not only could the District of Columbia alert the authorities here as to my presence within hours, it would work the other direction too. So, I had to look entirely unlike me. I delved into my bag and brought out an item of clothing I'd been keeping well over a year now. It was my father's grey kepi cap. I eyed the military encampment, knowing it would contain plenty of soldiers who had retained their old uniforms for when they fought for the Confederacy. Chances were high that switching this to my head would likely get me both noticed and shot without anyone even knowing I was Captain Abigail Gray, wanted fugitive. I put it back in my bag. This needed a more subtle touch. Not distraction, but a raggedy anonymity. I took off my hat, tied my hair up in a topknot and pulled the Stetson back down hard. That was my defining physical feature obscured. I reversed my coat shivering as the chilled blue leather and its sprinkling of snow closed around my body. I reached down to the frosty mud and grabbed half a handful to muss up the skin of my face with. Just enough to look travel-worn, not enough to look like a dirt creature. And feeling thoroughly uncomfortable, I let myself go limp and dull-looking, and stalked up the highway toward the town in search of just one man. I started in all the liquor stores. The second one I went into had what I needed. Have you served an engine journalist about yay high, kind of ornery? You mean Raven? Said Bart, the cashier, clad in a brown vest and apron. Been in town a week and he's visited us twice. Kind of fancy meeting a newspaper writer like that. Should I be asking for his autograph? Maybe so, if he's getting famous. What's he penning right now? Said he's covering the front lines of Civil War too, is what he calls it. Drafting his notes in the Riverlock Hotel while he waits for the RSA troops to get here. How long until they do? I asked warily. Those new Confederates look like they're spoiling for a scrap out there. Eh, can't come fast enough. Because if their reinforcements arrive first, this city's as good as taken. 
I thanked Bart, used RSA credit to buy a bottle of root beer from him, and hurried through the streets toward the river lock. Pulled the same routine with the lady at the front desk and found myself on the third floor outside Raven's room. From within, the sound of a rhythmic clacking could be heard. I recognized it as a furiously working typewriter. I knocked and waited. Get the fuck away from me! Came the roar from within. Or can you not see the do not disturb sign I glued to my door? It's room service, you old bastard! I'm the old bastard now, you scum-sucking worm! The fury continued as I heard the sound of a chair shifting. You're interfering with the recording of history. Unfiltered, unregulated... The door swung open, and there stood Raven, his hair a mess, half a bottle of whiskey clutched in two fingers of his right hand, a pewter beer stand of what turned out to be cold coffee hanging from the others. Unholy shit! Great! Get in here! He commanded. It's good to see you too. I looked around his room as the door closed behind me. The blinds were shut, the place reeked of tobacco, and there was a spot lamp directed at the desk, upon which sat the typewriter. Why are you here? I thought you were up in Canada. Well... Explaining my predicament took two minutes of blustering, and by the time I got to where I stood now, he had taken it all on board. He lit his second cigarette and exhaled slowly. Well, goddammit. What are you going to do? Who can protect you? Besides you? We both know I'm a stop, not a destination. I'll rent you a room below mine, and you can get your bearings. But you need a plan. So I say again, who can protect you? My great white hope was Catherine. Maybe the only person powerful enough to grant me some kind of defense or immunity against white. Which leaves? Frau was maybe the only one I figured could beat white one-on-one. But she did her best, and they're still coming for me, and now she's gone, so... And Penrose? What can James do? He can refuse to work for that fucker. He agreed with White back on the airship. You didn't exactly have time to talk. True, I admitted, thinking hard before reaching the nasty conclusion I'd had before. I feel like White would kill James if left with no other choice. I can't let that man die for me. Then... Where are you going to run to? Raven asked, clasping the two cigarettes between his right fore and middle finger and blowing a stream of acrid smoke across me. I have the beginnings of an idea. How far are we from the Penn State line? Due west of here would be uh, Kansas City. That's about a thousand miles. Shit. And me without a steam heart. She would have made things easier. You going to head into the west? Thinking about it. What are you hoping to find there? Maybe answers? Maybe a place to be? Your parents fled west from Clearwater, didn't they? He observed, narrowing his eyes. Yes, but I'm not chasing them. I might be chasing them. But really, if my plan involves playing keep away with White, the longer I hold him off getting his hands on this ability to close the doors, the longer Catherine has to broker more and better deals with the people of Autumn. Maybe if she can prove that the portals are of genuine benefit to America, White will just give up hounding me. You know, some year. Long time to plan on being on the run. Raven's voice had become surprisingly gentle. It is. But I think my feeling of determination kind of intensified when I voiced that just now. And hell, if I don't do it and I let him find me, I'm dead anyhow. 
and so are any plans of making friends with other worlds. He blew a smoke ring and nodded in agreement. That's a worthy enough reason, Gray. I'll get you that room. been listening to episode 7 of Uncivil Outlaw, Going to Ground, written, edited, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Captain Abigail Gray and Agent Lee Ying Long, performed by Sharon Shaw. Miguel, Mr. White, Nikola Tesla, and Raven, performed by Alex Shaw. Rao, performed by Maureen Foley. Thomas Edison, performed by Matt Wardle. Director Catherine Holloway, performed by Maya Santandrea. Deputy Director Truth Arlington, performed by Theo Lee. And Bart, performed by Chris Chipman. Cambodian Odyssey and The Descent, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Agent in Shanghai, performed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. Silent Winter by Running Wolf. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Uncivil Outlaw Theme, True Greatness, performed by Bjorn Lin of Shockwave Sound. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. I have donated to two charity funds connected with Black Lives Matter. There is Black Minds Matter, based in the UK, which is an organisation that connects black clients with black therapists, including providing financial support. These are two groups who respectively have a much tougher time being able to find mental health support and being able to attain the qualifications to practice due to the currently unfair system. And there is the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network's Autistic People of Colour Fund. This US-based charity provides direct support, mutual aid and reparations. I have specifically focused on some of the most vulnerable and often most ignored members of society here. Sharon has also donated to the Black Journalists Therapy Relief Fund, which is financing mental health support for black journalists covering the BLM demonstrations. Throughout at least July and August 2020 and what remains of June, every single penny I make from sales of the New Century Multiverse audiobooks on Bandcamp will be donated by me to those above-mentioned charities. So if you've been holding back on buying these, any that you pick up this summer will have the proceeds going to some very good causes. And all the links to these can be found pinned to the top of both of my Twitter accounts. And if you buy them on Friday, July 3rd, Bandcamp are waiving their revenue share. So literally every penny you spend will go to these worthy causes. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco. 
Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Hui, David Sheely, Kevin Bay, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm.